I think that's perhaps what we've lost a little bit with our very urbanized culture. It's like if we tend to our own patches and look after them and if you care for your locality and you care for your local community and you you kind of like mind your own patch, the world would kind of be fixed. You know, Like that would be such a better way of living, I think. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Good Dirt Podcast. If you're a new listener, we're so excited to have you. And if you've been around a while, you might be surprised to hear that it's just me today introducing the interview. We're going to be trying a new thing where we take turns introducing the weekly interviews. Or who knows? It might be more me. It might be more my mom. (laughs) We're going to see how it goes. And for more mother-daughter Mary Emma content, we will be releasing more bonus episodes and probably some solo episodes as well. So really just playing around with the format here and the best way for us to stay connected with y'all and for you guys to hear not only from all of the amazing experts that we bring on, but also from my mom and I. And we are just loving the good dirt so much and loving coming back every week and we want to keep going and make it the best that it can be. We want to remind you that we do have a voicemail box, so you can call us and leave a voicemail message. You may have heard the past few episodes, we've been playing our voicemails at the end of the episode. So if you listen all the way to the end, you might hear yourself if you've called in, or you will hear from one of our lovely listeners that we will select for the week to play at the end of our episode. So if you want to give us a ring at 443 Four five nine one nine five zero with a shout out, a question, or a story. We would really love to hear from you, and we might play it over the Good Dirt airwaves. So stay tuned all the way to that for the end, and feel free to call us at four four three four five nine one nine five zero. The number is also in the show notes, and if you go to our stories on Instagram, it's also easy to find. We would love to hear from you. So this week, I'm really honored to introduce Becky Cole. She is a regenerative farmer, gardener, folk herbalist, forager, and mother based on the award-winning Brogheman Farm, which she runs with her husband, Charlie. She became interested in natural living when she became burnt out from city life and went on a journey to discover slow living and the connection to nature. You can find Becky every month on BBC Radio 2, as well as her popular podcast, Nature and Nourish. She teaches workshops online and on the farm. Her first book, The Garden Apothecary, was released in 2002 with Hardy Grant. 
and she runs monthly nature connection circles on her Patreon page. Her Instagram handle is Becky O. Cole, and her website is BeckyOCole.com. My mom and I loved talking to Becky, and I think you're going to love it too. Enjoy. My name is Becky Cole. I live and work here at Brockgammon Farm, which is a nature-friendly farm situated in Northern Ireland. We're right up on the north coast, uh, right by the coast. And I'm also a gardener. I'm a mother to two little boys. I'm an author, just written a book, podcaster. And I'm also a regular gardening contributor to BBC Radio 2. So yeah, fingers and lots of pies. Yeah. Quite busy. <laughs> What's your origin story? Yeah. How did you get to be there at Brock Gammon Farm? Well, quite an unconventional route to the farm, I have to admit. I grew up in the countryside in the south of Ireland. So I was always surrounded by animals and, you know, my parents would grow their own veg and we had ponies and things like that. So, you know, we had quite a rural upbringing as kids, but I always wanted to work in fashion design. Actually, I loved clothes and my dad he worked at Trinity College in Dublin and would always bring back Vogue magazines for me and my sister to read. And that was like my Bible growing up. I just loved Vogue. Fashion was really the direction I wanted to go massively. So I went to art college, studied fashion design and sort of like halfway through that degree I just started to not feel good I was feeling so burnt out it just felt like such a wrong fit like I loved the design side of it I didn't like being trapped indoors all the time and I could feel my body just not happy and I actually ended up getting diagnosed with Hashimoto's quite young I think I was only about 19 which is an autoimmune condition that affects the thyroid and it can make you feel so tired and run down and I had to take a year out of uni to just kind of recoup myself a bit. And at that time, I started blogging and I really enjoyed blogging and I did lots of styling and I came back to uni, I finished my degree and I sort of like floated around a bit. I did some studying art history. I spent a lot of time in London with my sister and then I ended up working actually for a country clothing brand, which I really loved doing because it incorporated both the things that I loved, which was the countryside and clothes. And then during that time, I met my husband, Charlie, who had just finished university himself. So he'd studied at the Royal Agricultural College in Sirencester over in England. And he was looking to start a career and figure out what he wanted to do. And his parents had 50 acres of land here on the North Coast that they had bought not that long ago. They bought when Charlie was a teenager as a sort of holiday retreat from his father's work. And he sort of decided to come back and farm that land because he couldn't find a position in land management that suited him. So he sort of decided, right, I'm going to start farming. And yeah, then we pretty much met just as he started to do that. And from there, we have been building the Brock Gammon business together. And while I was starting in fashion, during that time of like, you know, having a bit of a health crisis and also learning to blog and communicate online, I started to realize like how detached I'd come from the seasons and from nature and I became really passionate about slow living and reconnecting back into the sort of natural rhythms of nature I really started enjoying seasonal eating so all kind of like coincided at once and yeah now I'm here at the farm we've been working together building the business for about uh, nine years perhaps quite remember oh, really it feels like quite a long time our oldest son is now five so yeah probably about nine years and we've really together we've really evolved something which is like quite interesting and at the same time I've also carried on blogging but about 
slow living and nature connection, which is something I'm really passionate about. And yes, it's sort of lovely, really. It's all come together and it's a really great pace of life. It's busy, but it also really incorporates those slow living ethos, which is so important to me. Wow. You're like the poster child for the Good Dirt podcast. You are. (laughs) You are. I'm just really curious if you can identify like a story or a time or even a moment when you experienced that disconnection and when you said you identified that it was you were feeling in your body that you miss being outside and you miss being in nature can you think of an example of that yeah I suppose living in the city you don't tend to notice like I felt anyway I wasn't really noticing nature at all and I would notice the change of seasons more through the shop displays in the windows that would be like the turning point like oh Christmas is coming or oh it's summer's on the way or spring's on the way because they put cherry blossoms in the windows and I could just feel something in me dying in a way and like as a child I was always very connected to nature I just had a natural empathy with it I was quite a quiet child time playing with flowers and plants and you know I remember one point I sort of married myself off the trees and some weird childish ceremony (laughs) oh oh yeah I just really love nature and like so it really only hit me when I was about 1920 that wait a minute like this has completely gone from my life and while I do still love fashion but I just did not want to end up working in a sort of factory setting with very small windows and just never seeing the sunlight it just felt like so disconnected and just I knew I wasn't going to thrive in that setting. Also, you said something in your talking about your journey. You said country clothing. What is country clothing? So like tweed jackets and like welly boots and things like that. Okay. So (laughs) it's like that sounds like a very UK thing. Yes. Is that the name of a brand or is that just a description? It's just a country clothing brand. So yeah, they sort of did like leather wellies and smart little country tweed jackets. And then a lot of the work you know I was working in a shop at that time but I was sort of helping them set it up and I set one up in Sloan Square and London for them and then it was also a lot of going to shows so going to four shows and agricultural events with the company and and showcasing at the events which was so much fun because you get to hang out in beautiful places like Badminton Estate and Burley and things like that and sell wellies which was great I love that Oh my goodness. Can you tell us the name of the company? Oh yeah. Dewberry. Dewberry. So you worked for though, so you were a salesperson or did you like make clothes? Oh no, I was his manager. That's so cool. I love that too, that that's part of your story because Lady Farmer, we started as a slow fashion brand. We designed a line of of clothing that we felt I mean it's different here I would say culturally there's definitely less tweed and things like that yeah I would call it country clothing maybe in America because we're like we want clothes that we can wear outside that we feel good in, that we can feel pretty in the garden so it was more like tunics and we had this cute pair of overalls and little dresses and things oh nice and this great pair of like breezy pants it all started when I said I needed something to work in the garden in besides shorts and a t-shirt yeah yeah there's got to be something else dress or something so we made (laughs) we made it up (laughs) since then there's so many more options and it's such a wonderful evolving slow fashion sort of field but it's interesting that that's part of the story too right we came into slow living through slow fashion it's also related right like your food and then of course sadly the story of being faced with an illness a chronic illness autoimmune is so common and many times that's people's gateway into real food and the healing power of plants and stuff yeah I I always think that's the thing like often it has to be something that stops you in your tracks a little bit and opens your eyes whether it's like burnt out or yeah you have a health crisis or something and in a way though I wouldn't wish Hashimoto's on myself in a way but at the same time I'm grateful to it because 
it did slow me down and give me a new direction in life and showed me the life I think I was always meant to live in a way I was meant to have like a slower life I just love being in the countryside I really do I'm so grateful for it Mm -hmm. and I think because I did have that health crisis gave me that did it taught me to slow down it taught me to appreciate nature and get back in tune with that and if it wasn't that you know who knows maybe I would have carried on down that route for a lot longer I think our bodies do have a way of telling us when we're off course for sure and speak to us through symptoms and even disease and yeah that's so interesting yeah I believe that too. I'm interested in hearing it as a teenager and you were interested in fashion. That probably was a little before the awareness around fast fashion. But when you were working in the fashion industry earlier in your career, were you aware of the problems in the fashion industry? No, not really. Like I was actually fashion blogging for a while and I was getting a lot of free clothes. A lot of high street companies would use me to style their clothes or model their clothes. And it was good for a while. And then I, you know, I didn't quite know the specifics, but I started to feel again, you know, oh, this isn't quite right. You know, I'm, how, you know, how are there so many collections? Where is this stuff coming from? And when I moved into the country clothing, while there wasn't an emphasis on sourcing, and, you know, this was a few years ago before that has become a real thing that people look for. Yeah. It still encompassed a lot of those ethics of slow fashion because it was about, there wasn't really collections. It was like clothes that were designed to last a lifetime, tweeds that you could patch up and repair. And yeah. I suddenly loved that. I was like, this is so much more interesting to me. I love the idea of having a beautiful jumper that you have for a lifetime and you patch up mm-hmm. or a beautiful tweed jacket that sees you through life and you know, has a bit of wear and tear at the end. And I got quite interested in brands like Cabbages and Roses, which is a beautiful, like, sort of country clothing brand over here. And now, you know, I'm really conscious of what I wear hugely. And I would very, very rarely buy from the high street. You know, it's mainly slow fashion brands that I would like to wear. Yeah. It's lovely now because I get to wear beautiful clothes all the time, but they are supporting companies that got such better ethics and, you know, not churning out ridiculous quantities of clothes that most of them go to land for, which is just crazy terrifying it is interesting that the nature of the country clothing yeah i'm using quotation marks i just love that phrase (laughs) the country clothing is that it's based on utility right so like by nature of it it's going to be more sustainable because it has to be absolutely and you know what usually a higher price point so you know right they're investing in something and they expect it to last Mm -hmm. well you know that throwaway fashion you're buying something for a couple of pounds and it doesn't matter if it just lasts one wear, but actually the impact on the environment is just awful. You know, now that I think about it, Becky, is Hunter the brand, is that an English brand? The Boots? Yeah, yeah I think Hunter yeah. Boots was the first time that I consciously, it was probably in high school, for whatever reason, they were cool. And I was like, I want Hunter Boots. I didn't realize that they were, you know, they were so much more expensive than other rain boots. And I kind of remember connecting the dots. Oh, well, I guess... You need them to be like better made and to last longer and durable. And they're like really doing a job like they're rain wellies. Yeah, there's definitely a moment I think you have something that's better quality and you go, oh, this is the difference. Yeah, (laughs) this is a completely different thing. And like, I also remember when I started working for the country clothing brand, I suddenly felt warm in winter. Like most of the time I was so cold. You know, I was like this fashion student that would have put style over comfort for sure. So Working for a country clothing brand, I was cozy and warm and waterproof all the time. And it was so addictive. I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is much better. I'm not getting a cold every five minutes. Right. Oh, that's such a good point because a lot of people don't realize that the synthetic blends don't keep you as warm. Absolutely. And, you know, I live in an old cottage here on the farm and 
I will only ever wear real wool because it keeps me warm. Yeah. Like a, a jumper that's made of artificial fibers has no use to me at all. Like it's just so impractical. Mm -hmm. The only good thing about it is, you know, it washes on a high wash or something. Mm -hmm. Well, with woolly jumper, I would hand wash it. They just aren't so impractical to say you're not warm. So what's the point of them? I just don't know. But that's all the things I discovered working actually on the country clothing brand was the practicality, what really good fibers felt like mm -hmm. and how good it felt to be well-dressed in the sense, you know, dressed for the weather, dressed for the Irish climate. Well-dressed in a like way that makes sense. Accurately dressed. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then I'd look around and I'd be like, wait a minute, we're all living in Ireland here. It rains like 90% of the time mm -hmm. and most people are not wearing waterproof. Yeah, it was a game changer. <laughs> oh, I just think that's so interesting how most of us these times live in climate-controlled environments. So we've gotten away from the natural fibers, not only because of the industry of fas fashion, but also because of the necessity of staying warm and dry and all that. Gosh, that really speaks to our, again, our disconnection from nature. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'll also add that since I've transitioned a lot of my clothing to more natural fibers, and maybe this is kind of gross, but my clothes don't smell bad. <laughs> like if yeah. I wear things a few days in a row, like they're just so much more durable to like life. Oh, absolutely. And you know what? We shouldn't be washing our clothes that often. Right. Like, ideally, you don't wash your jeans after every single time you wear them. We certainly with woolly jumpers. I mean, most good quality brands would encourage you to wash them as little as possible mm -hmm. because they it wears them out and it gives them such a longer life if you could but yeah good quality fibers should be able to cope with a bit of wear and tear yeah just, you know, need washing every five seconds i'm wondering all the beautiful pictures on your website what are those clothes are you representing brands or are those just things you've collected over the years i love the clothes you're wearing in your pictures <laughs> also i will <laughs> i want to jump in and say when she says woolly jumper you mean wool sweater right <laughs> I mean, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. Now tell us about the clothes on your feet. Yeah. Yeah. So those are just pieces that I've collected really over the last few years. Um, there's a few brands that I love. Justine Tabat, Daydress, Beauty Print Indian Rock Print Clothes, all made in the UK. A friend of mine has a company called Bramble Green, which does love the Irish knitwear. So yeah, I just sort of, I spent wisely now. You know, I don't buy a lot of clothes, but the things I do buy are things that I really, really love and can be used throughout the year and really practical and and yeah, coming from a really ethical place, which means so much to me. So mm. still, if the thing is, though, I've moved away from fashion in some ways. I still celebrate clothes and celebrate wearing beautiful things because I love aesthetics and I love beautiful things. So for me, wearing nice clothes, even though I am a farmer and I'm rounding up pigs, <laughs> it makes my day more joyful having a beautiful Liberty print on my Oh, yes. Oh, I love this so much because this is how Lady Farmer started. There, that, that was exactly our thinking, wasn't it, Emma? Mm -hmm. So you just mentioned the farming. Let's talk a little bit about what you're doing there and sort of the methods that you're using and your philosophy around the life that you're building there on your farm. Yeah, and if, if you guys started nine or ten years ago, and were you already thinking about regenerative farming back then? Yeah, so Charlie and I have always been very environmentally conscious. So we have a cottage here on the farm, and then there's the main farmhouse where his parents live. He actually helped build that house, and he used solar power and rainwater harvesting and things like that on that house. And that was quite a while ago that that was built. But Charlie's uncle was in renewable energies, and then my dad is well, he well, he's just retired, but he was a pretty high up environmental scientist. So between us, we've come from like a background of environmental interest. So that was something that we've always been very interested in. And my dad's written quite a few books, and one of his books is all about climate change. I was always very conscious as a child that how real the climate crisis is. My dad maybe was exposed to information that wasn't out there for the general public and it was scary. You know, the climate crisis is 
I think as we're all starting to realize now is like really bad you know it's almost irreversible it's it's that bad and so yeah we Charlie and I were always conscious that we would have to farm in a different way and we never really had interest in doing it in a traditional way anyway because we have 50 acres of land here and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very mixed land. It's not like perfect agricultural field. Some of it's very rough and boggy. We were going to have to think outside the box. Also, there was not really a farm here when we arrived. So we've had to build the barns ourselves. Yeah, we had to really start from scratch, which perhaps is a good thing because we could do exactly what we wanted. We started off actually with goats. So as I met Charlie, he had just got going on this and uh, what he his thinking was behind it was what could he do, which was cheap and ethical and sustainable. And he discovered actually that in the dairy, the goat dairy, so, you know, the place where the milk comes to be made into goat's cheese, sold as goat's milk, the male boys in the dairies were always put down. So the female goats would be kept and the male boys all put down the minute they're born. And because there was no use for them in our part of the world, you know, people don't eat goat meat and the male goats, you know, you just don't need that many of them. Can't milk them and you only need a couple of billies. You know, he started to realize, wow, this is such a waste. You know, this is not a circular food system. This is really terrible. So he started to buy in these baby billy kids and we started off with a caravan and literally we had these baby goats in a caravan and we were bottle feeding them. It was incredibly labor intensive. And we really had to try and not only rear these animals, but sell the meat, which was really difficult. And initially, Charlie thought that he had uh, this restaurant signed up to purchase all this goat. And last minute, they said no. So we were left with all the goat meat. And uh, what we did actually is we turned them into billy burgers. We turned the meat into billy burgers, which was a goat burger. And we set up a stall at the local hub and people were a little bit drunk it was the Lammas Fair which is like a big festival here on the north coast people were a little bit drunk they didn't really know what they were eating but they knew it was good because they kept coming back oh this is amazing this is the best burger we've ever eaten and uh yeah then we were like it's goat burger <laughs> so really that was the that was the beginning yeah and then <laughs> oh, how smart sort of built up a local market we would do a lot of street food you know getting out to events we actually have a street food trailer and We've won Great British Street Food Awards and things like that with it now. So we've done really well on that side. And yeah, then eventually we moved to a polytunnel. So we had the goats in a polytunnel because that was like the next stage up from a caravan that we could afford. And we did all the goats in a caravan and we had bigger numbers. And then now we have some like proper farm barns where we have our goats. And at the same time of doing that, sort of understanding this whole idea of something that was a bit more sustainable and also seeing the problem within the dairy industry, especially with the goat dairy industry, we realized there was a similar problem in the beef and the milk industry. And basically what was happening, exactly the same thing with mm. the Liddy kids, the boy calves that were born were being exported or put down because they don't fatten up for beef. They're not, not a beef breed. So what was happening is they were also like a sort of discarded right. product and people have a real issue. So the word feel has really bad connotations for most people. But veal is basically like young bullock as a meat, but people don't want to eat that. But basically what we've done is we do raise free range rose veal now. So what we do is we work with the local dairies. We pick up the young beef calves. We wean them off milk and then we rear them outside on grass. So we put them to slaughter around six to eight months. So they're kind of like baby bulls, I dare say. So they, they have horns. They're a little bit fighting. Yeah. I'm slightly scared of them. So they're not those milk-fed little tiny sweet calves. That you, That is not the product. It's a big, hefty right. mini bull that goes off to the slaughter. So we started doing that and that was, again, that was actually quite a hard sell because people, you know, immediately hear the word feel and they think milk fed feel, 
So we had to kind of tell people, no, no, this is ethical, sustainable, outdoor weird animal. But also if you're going to drink cow's milk, you're looking at the byproduct. You know, you've got to consume the byproduct. Yeah. So if you're eating goat's cheese, why are you not eating the goat's meat? It's amazing. Because, you know, that's a waste. That's it's It's such a shocking waste when you think about it. And it's the same with the cows. And, you know, if you're going to drink the milk, you need to look at the whole system, like what's happening to those bull calves. And, you know, you need to eat that meat as well. That's fascinating. So we started doing that for a while. And then we moved into, we've got some chicken size. So we do our own eggs and we also have pigs. And we use the pigs that kind of like churn up and fertilize our ground. And then we also started doing sheep this year because we actually had a bit of a problem getting some of the goats from the dairies. There was like a few of them went out of business. So we were a little bit low on numbers. So we thought, oh, look, let's try some sheep. Let's diversify further. So we have some Easy Care is the is the name of them, Easy Care sheep, which have been really fun, actually, because I love sheep. So, yeah, that's, I think, and we've got a couple of donkeys. I think that's everything. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Are the sheep for meat as well? Yes, they're going to be for meat as well. Yeah. I've never heard of that whole system in the dairy industry and I've never thought about yeah because I guess it makes sense that boys aren't helpful if you're doing dairy and you only need one I guess Mm -hmm. to breed Mm -hmm. and at the risk of this being really upsetting in general I mean they just they're discarded like they just slaughter them and what do they do with them well definitely with the boy goats yes they would I don't know how they kill them but they'd kill them straight away and then with the calves, they'll either be exported, which, you know, isn't the nicest thing for an animal. Yeah. Or, again, they'll be put down. So, But they just put them down and they don't sell them for meat or anything because they're too young, right? Yeah, they'd be too young. So yeah. Um, so they just compost or? Yeah, I, I said that. <laughs> to somewhere. So yeah, real, real waste of an animal. And it also makes a broken, you know, broken food system as well. Right. Yeah. Is this just in Ireland or is is this all over? This is like a piece of the food system I wasn't even aware of. I I hate to admit, but it's common practice. Yeah, I imagine it common practice. I think we're quite keen on regenerative farming and I think most systems are broken. Most farms are not using all the product. For example, we use our cows to mob graze our field. So that's where you're doing like intensive pockets of grazing and you move your cows each day and what it does it creates really healthy root systems and healthy ground and yeah like that's part of having animals is like you're putting them on the ground they're fertilizing the ground then you're eating the meat and then we spread the muck on the fields as well we grow vegetables so it's kind of like using the animal not just indoor reared but you're bringing it outside you're getting healthier vegetables as a part of it so it's kind of like yeah creating like a circular food system but also creating like a balance you know where everything's working in conjunction with each other well I think any intensive farming system like where you've got loads of those animals in a barn or something I mean you can't really use them in that way so much and I suppose it creates a bit of a wonky system that's so interesting do you explain to your customers what you're doing how often do you have to tell this story yeah (laughs) do you Tell people like you're eating, you are helping to close the loop on this broken food system by consuming the byproduct of your milk. I mean, are people aware of that when they buy from you? Yes, we do push that story as much as we can, but we also are very transparent in how we rear our animals. So we have an open farm uh, three days a week. So Friday, Saturday and Sunday, Mm. we have a completely open door policy. So we have like a little farm shop and cafe. People can come, get a coffee or get some lunch, and then they get to walk around the whole farm, Uh see the animals, see the polytunnels in the veg field, and they can kind of see where their food's coming from. And then we have some storyboards and stuff up so they can kind of read about it. We are very transparent and we try and, in the spare time that we've got, we try and get on social media and sort of share that as much as we can as well. But I 
I think a lot of people still don't know, you know, exactly the whole story. And I think, you know, we are in general, I think we're all very detached from where our food comes from. So it's quite a big problem to fix, trying to get people interested in like, what are you eating? Where is it coming from? The importance of buying food that's local where you can and getting to know your farmer. It's like so important. I'm oh, sorry. I was just lost in a daydream of visiting yes, your farm. I know. <laughs> I know. I was like there in my brain. I think we were both like staring into space. Like I know this podcast always has. I was literally like to jump on a plane. farmer retreat in yeah Ireland. Northern Ireland. <laughs> Go visit. Get a coffee. <laughs> Looking for a natural and reliable plant fertilizer you can trust. For your garden and indoor plants alike, look no further than BIOS, the all-natural plant fertilizer. Use the link in the show notes to get yourself a free sample from their website so you can try it yourself. Then use the code LADYFARMER15 for 15% off when you're ready to buy. BIOS will come to you in compostable packaging and is 100% pet-friendly, which we love here at Lady Farmer. BIOS, the all-natural plant fertilizer for everyone. I want to talk about your foraging and your herbs and your natural remedies and all this sort of thing that you do. And uh, in your I, book that just came out, right? Yes, last month. Yeah. 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 So I think probably, well, do you know what? I, I ever, actually, yes, I know where it all came from. So when I was very, very small, I was trying to figure out when the herbs became a thing in my life. And it really was when I was quite small because my parents had this book by Juliet De Barky Levy, I believe she's quite a famous herbalist, but I didn't know it at the time. They had this book of remedies in their library, and I remember reading it and just like, oh, like this is so fascinating and just loving it. And there's also a business, actually, you probably have in America too, called Lush. So if you come across Lush, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, so, like cosmetics, yes, bath, skincare. Yeah. And my dad, because he worked in Dublin, he would buy us like bath bombs and stuff occasionally and bring bring home. Yeah. Like they used to have this newspaper called the Lush Times. And in it, they would have like the products and they'd also tell you all the ingredients that were in the products. And for some reason, like, I just find this so fascinating. Like I loved seeing how you can make like a face cleaner, like with just a few ingredients, like almonds and lavender and, and that with the remedies book, it kind of blew my mind. Like I just loved it. I don't even know why, but it just really fascinated me. And I would try and find remedies for various people in my family and like go around foraging for things and learning about some of the plants. And then, you know, I got into the fashion thing and I kind of left that behind. And then when I moved up to the farm and I started to grow my food, I just started foraging because I, I knew something was going to be in season like sorrel and I wanted to go find it. And mm-hmm. it was just so interesting. You know, it was just such a wonderful and I really do recommend foraging to anyone who's wanting to connect with nature and broaden their knowledge because it's it's so much fun. First of all, you can go and even if you have no idea, you don't have to eat the plants. You know, you can set yourself a challenge and go and try and find something growing with some great books as guides and and get to know like a bit of botany and leaf shapes. And, you know, it, it really was just such a fascinating thing for me. And I, I just immediately loved it. But it really sort of tied in with that whole concept of learning about seasonal eating and yeah, eating with the seasons and the ebb and flow. Yeah, I sort of just taught myself really about the herbs. Yeah, I've, I've taken quite a few online herbal courses and, you know, Charlie and I got married and I had my first son five years ago. So I didn't have the opportunity to go and here in, in the UK and Ireland, you have to go off to like university basically to become a, a clinical herbalist, it's slightly different in the US. I think in the US, I would be considered like a fully graduated herbalist, but over here it's a lot more red tape. So you'd have to go and like do, you know, a proper four year course and a lot of money, which I didn't have. 
So I wasn't able to do it that way, though I really wanted to for a long time. And I ended up just having to sort of self-teach myself a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And it was just, yeah, it's just been such a magical journey, really, just learning about herbs and growing them and working with them. And I was very lucky that Hardy Grant, the publisher I've worked with, reached out to me two years ago and uh, just wanted me to write a book. So they sort of directed me a little bit to go towards the herbal direction and the garden apothecary. I really wrote it wanting it to be a guide for anyone that's interested in gardening. And I wanted it to really highlight that you can see weeds in a new light, that you don't have to see weeds as a as a necessarily a bad thing. You know, you can look at weeds with a bit of curiosity and realize that like nature is quite clever. You know, in spring, things like dandelions and nettles are growing usually because they're really good for you. And actually they're kind of the thing that you need after a slow winter. And things like dandelions mm-hmm. are so good for your digestion and getting our bodies moving. Same with cleavers. And, you know, in autumn, you know, all the beautiful berries are growing, which are great for our immunity. And I just think what I've learned through all, all my years of herbalism is nature is really clever. And if we just sort of slow down a bit and listen to it, it can teach us so much. Instead of seeing, oh, no, there's nettles growing in my garden. Sort of realizing, yeah. <laughs> you know, the folklore behind them, the history that it's been used as a fabric. It's incredibly important for butterflies and biodiversity. It's also a fantastic mm. food. The seeds are medicinal. Yeah, it's just amazing. You know, we don't need to be at war with our gardens. We can actually work in unison with weeds and nature. And, and I think just really approach everything with curiosity first. I mean, there are some weeds which are very invasive and you do have to get rid of, or you don't want maybe dandelions all over your flower bed. But I think mm-hmm. yeah, it's approaching nature with a bit of curiosity and letting it teach you as well. Oh, I agree so much. And my last 10 years here at the farm has been a similar process for me, just looking at what's around and asking why it's there, what uses it has. And it's just such a different way of living from before, like you say in the suburb or whatever, where, you know, your lawn needs to be like one thing and you need to spray things like dandelions and so forth that you supposedly don't want. It's just such a, like turning the whole idea on its head and saying, this thing is here in my midst and what can it do for me? Because to your point, there is such a wisdom in it, such a wisdom in all these many, many plants and such abundance. Yeah. The abundance of like just dandelions, for instance, the abundance of, you mentioned cleavers. Gosh, you go out there in the spring and they're just all over the place and nettles and all these things that are so valuable, so rich in nutrients and so rich in benefits of many kinds, just yeah. all around us. And for free, if we just know, we just know to look for it. It's it's just really, really magical. So when you teach foraging, I like what you said about you're not foraging necessarily to eat. You're just foraging it again. Just look at what's around you and ask why it's there and what what's it, its use and purpose. But when you are teaching people about foraging to eat, like say foraging for a, a salad, say how do you tell them to get started so they know what they're getting and they don't pick up something that's going to make them sick? Or what's your advice on that? Why would we say like start with something you kind of know already? So you most people know like for example dandelions, you know, or plantain, or you know these are really quite safe, easy to identify plants. Nettles, another one that I love teaching about. So you know, like just starting small. And I think you know one of the herbalist ideas is this idea of working. It's called simpling. It's like working with one herb at a time or one plant at a time. And that's a really great place to start. Perhaps there is a plant that you're really curious about. You can go find it. 
you could perhaps take a cutting, press it, put it in your journal, really look at the structure of it, how it evolves through a whole year. If you're hundred percent sure about what it is, you know, you could taste it, you could make, you know, if it's suitable, you can make it into a tea or something. So I think that's such a fun way of doing it. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be a rush. You know, you don't have to be a pro forager. You don't have to start with something that's a bit yeah. dodgy, you know, like mushrooms or the carrot family, which, you know, there is a lot. You need to be pretty pro at that kind of side of it. But you can also just forage in your garden for some of the weeds that are growing and get to know them and spend time with them. And I love that. I love that slow principle of just like, let's explore plantain and see it through a whole year. And, you know, you, you realize it's actually it's got these amazing little flower heads that are, are so subtle and humble, but really pretty. And, you know, you can get to know the whole plant, the roots, everything and, and really explore it and do a bit of nature journaling. And you read up on in the, quite a few different books on, on some of the stories and the folklore and past uses i always think it's so interesting to see how plants were used in the past you know things like rose hips were such an important part of like one and world war ii children were actually encouraged to go out and forage for the rose hips and bring them to their local pharmacies and were made into national rose hip syrup because their citrus fruit wasn't available and they would would take it for their vitamin c intake to keep them healthy mm-hmm. and like i mentioned before nettles were a really important fiber actually a lot of german uniforms were made with nettle fibers and like there's so many interesting things we've lost, like we've lost some of the skills of being out in the wild and feeling safe in nature. I think a lot of people don't feel safe in nature anymore. And they've lost yeah. those skills, which were so like inherent in us. Even as a child, I knew that you could eat clover and honeysuckle. I didn't even ask. I just knew, like I knew you could get nectar from the honeysuckle. I knew the same as the clover. And that's just kind of, I think, you know, it's in us all that intuitive ability to forage and to you know nature is there for everybody you know it really is it's completely inclusive you know i hope everyone can get out into a park at least or everyone's got some space to grow something or to connect with that soil you know it's just yeah it's just so important and i think if everyone could do that the world would be happier place i love what you said about people being afraid or not feeling safe in nature because i think that's really true and that's really it's interesting that we feel safer or we've been maybe conditioned to feel safer Absol- in yeah, absolutely. our air conditioning yeah. and away from bugs and, you know, those yeah. sorts of things. Or, you know, it's a, you know, some parents are so scared of getting their kids dirty. You know, it's like, ah, you know, yeah. I've got soil over the hands or something. It's like, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> it's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. good dirt. That there is, you know, yeah. I'd rather yes. have countryside soil and countryside mess on me than city. It's true, true. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I think there is a, I think, I, I do understand it's it's a luxury and it's a privilege to live in the countryside. And I am very grateful for that. And I understand a lot of people don't get the opportunity, but I do think there are a lot of people who have just become, yeah, they don't know where their food's come from. They probably don't spend much time outside in nature and they're losing such an important part of being a human being. This is where we all come from at the end of the day. Like this is, we are part of nature. Like we're not separate from it. So I think it's just, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, it's important that we all connect to it because it's what we are back to the thing about fear factor of nature. There are things in our times that I think just amplify that. For instance, I don't know if you have this in Ireland, but over here, Lyme's disease is getting to be such a big thing. Yeah. And the ticks are everywhere and people are really afraid of tick bites for good reason. Yeah. And I'm wondering about this. When I was a kid, we got ticks a lot and it was, you know, you took them off. It was no big deal and could get Rocky Mountain spotted fever, but we didn't know anybody that had had it. And just, it wasn't a big thing. But now it's a, and you hear of people that have Lyme disease all yeah, the time. Yeah, we know many people. 
And I think to me, that's a symptom of our entire culture being out of balance with nature, that this is a real thing, that it is kind of a threat. And I don't know what the answer to that is, or I don't even know what the reason for bringing it up is, except that it just does add to that sense of fear that people have in the mosquitoes. And yeah, Yeah, yeah. I would agree. Like, again, I don't know what the answer is, but I do feel like nature is out of balance at the moment. I think we have taken so much from her and put so much pressure on the natural system that we have become pests, I would say, (laughs) ever so slightly. (laughs) And I think, you know, nature does tend to balance itself out. It does it with animals. It does it with everything, you know, and human beings have put too much. They're expecting too much. They've taken too much. And Mm -hmm. again, I don't know, but I just have this feeling like it's sort of like this slightly out of balance ecosystem where the human is becoming too much for nature to carry. Putney, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Not the most. I know. No, it's true. Well, in the same vein, I'm interested in, gosh, your journey, truly like storybook, just so wonderful to hear you tell it. And then also, of course, looking at your website and your imagery and everything and your beautiful podcast. I've actually listened to it before. It's so calming and wonderful. What in this journey that I'm sure you've shared along the way, but what can you share with us here that are some of the more challenging things or maybe not as easy to convey over social media or the internet that are just like some of like the real challenging stuff, whether in your life or business or the, just the biggest hurdles you've had to come through? Well, being a farmer is, is definitely not easy. And I do think times social media makes it look a bit like, you know, the dream. It's like, oh no, the yeah, um, and it is, and you know, it's incredibly hard, and it's a huge commitment. You know, Charlie and I have maybe taken one holiday since we started. I mean, you know, we work oh, wow. hard, and when you've got animals, you can't leave them. You know, you have to be there the whole mm-hmm. time to look after them. Mm-hmm. And when you're growing a business from scratch, there isn't a huge budget. So you know, we're really gradually bringing on staff now and sort of getting a bit more time off, but. Definitely, like, it's absorbed our entire lives. And, like, I very much see, like, farming as a lifestyle. You know, it's not a nine-to-five job. It's not a job that you can just, like, put down at the end of the day. It's something which Mm. is there all the time. You might need to get out up in the middle of the night (laughs) to sort something out. Or Mm -hmm. there's good bits, there's bad bits. You know, crops can fail. Animals can get sick. It can be really heartbreaking as well. Like, if you're trying to rear a baby goat and then he just doesn't make it you know you've tried so hard yeah. you've fed this animal and he just doesn't have the will to live and always that's so frustrating you know you see that mm. so yeah I mean farming is hard and like there's so many like endless challenges to that but I see that really as part of my I think like, I take slow living really quite seriously like I know it's mm-hmm. a really popular thing but I, I really do live a slow life like I say I, I you know I don't travel much I really rarely fly and I like that you know it's taken me a while to sort of train myself to, to live a slow life but you know now I sort of realize you know this is a lifestyle it's not going to look like everyone else's job it's not a salaried job I don't get like a, a holiday time but I get to work with nature every single day every morning I get a get up and see the sunrise and get to see the sunset and I get to be part of that and I I really love that you know and I, you know it's just something I could not yeah so it is difficult it's hard work it's crazy hard work so I think that wouldn't suit everyone but there's lots of pros to it too you know it's an amazing way of life and yeah. being in touch with nature like every day is just incredible what a wonderful way to raise your children as well yeah yes I mean they have a great life they get to go down to the polytunnels and eat fresh peas and whenever we're outside uh, doing the veg field they just love 
like kale and stuff like that's where they'll eat all their greens for the day they're just raw straight off the plant and yeah they they have such a great life (laughs) I love what you just said about you had to train yourself a little bit to really embrace the living or really appreciate it is there anything specific to that point of like training you know like where in the past decade would you have felt frustrated by it and like what did that training look like I think that's interesting how you put it yeah I suppose you know letting go of comparison a bit you know like mm. that was a big part of it sort of thinking I should be going on my two holidays a year or that kind of thing you know sort of training myself self out of that mindset first of all and like letting go of how I think my life should look like and actually just go with what feels good and also you know like totally a classic thing is like learning just to be in the moment and enjoying simple things so you know whether that's just like I often say this you know it's making teas and stuff like there's a kind of idea of a tea meditation where you enjoy the whole process so to interesting enough my in-laws put in that you know those taps that give you boiling water straight yeah so they put those in it and you know it's funny because I was talking to my husband afterwards I was like you know I'm glad they've got them that makes them happy but I actually want to do the opposite of that you know like because at the moment I have an electric wait kettle. for the water to boil yeah exactly and like yeah. I have an electric kettle and I you know I was actually saying yeah, I'd really like to get a kettle that you know goes on the the gas hob and even slows down the process mm-hmm. even more because why are we rushing like what's the big rush mm-hmm. you know we, mm-hmm. which I think this is it's that I think again it's that idea of curiosity it's like why are we speeding so much what are we trying to achieve in our lives like what's this big end goal like why do we need to earn mm-hmm. so much money why do we mm-hmm. need to look a certain way why like what is this all about and I think for me it's like I just want to be happy I just want to be happy I don't want to have a huge impact on the planet I want to give back mm-hmm. and I really want to feel connected to nature because that, that's what brings me joy, you know, knowing that I can mm-hmm. go out and see something growing and I feel completely 100% fulfilled. You know, I feel so joyful and happy to just be out in the elements and that's what lights me up and I just want to maintain that really. So that's kind of what I've learned over the last years is just that feeling of like happiness over the most simplest things. Like I was saying with the team, you know, being able to boil a kettle, you know, having a beautiful mug that your friends made you or, or, you know, someone's made that you really cherished and using a beautiful organic tea or something like that. I mean, these are all privileges that I think we take for granted. You know, we're so lucky mm-hmm. in the part of the world that we, we both are. And I think, you know, it's very easy just to, it's that constant thing of like, we want more, we want more, we want more. And then the things that we would have thought were so special, we're kind of just discarding. And it's just, I'm trying to pull back those things and realize, no, that is special. Making that yeah. tea special or making a meal special. And, you know, it doesn't have to be so fast paced and like, or the grass is always greener. Well, the grass isn't always greener. Like we know that, like it's that constant comparisonitis and keeping up with the Joneses. It's like, I just feel like that's so fed by a kind of like, it's a capitalist idea. And like, you know, that more and more. more. Yeah. And I just don't think that much joy is always got that way. So yeah, I get, I'm always sort of questioning things. Something like, well, why am I doing this? Or why do I feel like I need yeah. that? And can I just be happy with less? That's kind of important for me too. Yeah. You have so much wisdom for I such know. a young person. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of things to that too. Well, first of all, the grass is always greener. We just we had a recent conversation too that at this point, regular listeners of the Good Dirt podcast might recognize this, but a couple of conversations ago, our guest said, we feel like the grass is always greener, but also if you just water and take care of your own grass it'll also get greener <laughs> i really <laughs> love that <laughs> I, love um, that. I, just, I love it, that yeah it's funny how that's like never that was the first time i've ever heard that but it's duh right <laughs> the other is have you heard of this book Four Thousand weeks 
Time Management for Mortals. No. I think it's pretty new. Oliver, I'll have to look up his last name, but um, I just started reading it. It was recommended to me twice this week from separate people, which is how you know, you know, the universe really wants me to read it. So I started reading it and... This is also something we talk about a lot, Lady Farmer, too. But I really love the way that he explains it just in the first few pages, how the great myth that we all just need to, like, accept to start getting over our obsession with time management and using our time wisely and fast, fast, fast and getting efficient and getting the hot water spout, right, is that the myth is that we'll finish everything at some point. Mm. If we find ways to be more efficient, then we'll get it done faster. Yeah. And that's just not true. And while that not being true, the quicker we empty out our email inbox, the quicker the emails will come in. The faster we do the laundry, the faster the laundry will pile up. Just like those are like basic facts of like life. And so that kind of sucks to think about, but also what a relief as soon as we accept it. (laughs) Yeah. This isn't actually going to fix anything. Nothing's actually going to. Like we don't accomplish anything by speeding up. (laughs) that the work because we just make more work yeah so why don't we just not yeah we talk about this all the time but that slight perspective shift I was like oh my gosh that's like almost funny you know yeah it reminds me of the guy on the road speeding past you just passing you he's so impatient because you're going slow yeah speeds around you and guess what you're both end up at the red light at the same time and you look over (laughs) and you're like how you doing it is such a bizarre concept like why like why are we speeding into our lives like what's the end goal like what Mm -hmm. what what's the finishing line anyway there is no finishing line Mm -hmm. like life is a journey you embrace Mm -hmm. the journey Mm -hmm. uh, there is no end goal I think that's the thing isn't it it's like if you can just be happy in the here and the now and Mm -hmm. try and be a good person and give back and look after what you've got and like I love what you said about the grass isn't really you tend to your own patch. And I think that's perhaps what we've lost a little bit with our very urbanized culture. It's mm-hmm. like if we tend to our own patches and look after them. And so actually, I suppose it's that kind of like permacultural idea of localization as well. It's like if you care for your locality and you care for your local community and you you kind of like mind your own patch, the world mm-hmm. would kind of be fixed. You know, it would, it would make so much yes. sense. You know, instead of like having to conquer the next field and the next field and the next field. And we just looked after our own mm-hmm. patch and our own people. Like, that would be such a mm. better way of living, I think. Or telling those people three patches over how they should be doing their patch. And then we're, <laughs> yeah. our, we're not even doing it. Yeah, exactly. So silly. Yeah. The whole thing of, you know, saving time and, and rushing, it's actually at the heart of so much of our consumer culture because we're sold the idea that we need certain things to do these things faster. And it's kind of created this myth of we need to hurry up because we're being sold a lot of things that are supposed to save us time. Right. We kind of back that up and look at it in a different way. If we're starting to feel that way, we can think like, what am I being sold right now? Exactly. It's just a consumeristic world that we live in. And it's, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's that we're all have been sort of designed, I guess, like by modern culture to work really hard to you know get our mortgage get a big house do the job and that's kind of I guess that's the way society works and that's the way a lot of businesses work but if you can sort of I mean I feel very lucky that I've been able to slightly step out of that and create my own vision of how I want my life and I truly think it's a better life and other people I know who have also stepped out of that burnout culture they feel better for it Mm. you know they really do and you might not end up with the fancy car and things like that but actually you start questioning why do I need that anyway yeah 
So you're talking about your tea meditation. I'm just curious, what kind of tea are you making these days? Do you go out and, and pick the plants for your tea? Yeah. What are you having these days? I haven't mixed things. I do love sun tea, which is mm. things like at this time of year, be some calendula, some rose, some lemon balm and mint. And if the weather's really nice, you know, you can pour over some water in a, in a jar and then leave it out in the sun with a lid on to infuse for a, a couple of hours. And that's always so beautiful. It's like it's warmed by the sun and the aromas get into the water and it's a slow process. You have mm. to leave it, but it looks, it looks so beautiful. It tastes so beautiful. I love that one in particular. And I love a bit of Tulsi at bedtime. Some oat milk and some honey stirred in. That's really good mm. <laughs> and nice and relaxing to the body. We know an herbalist who has a little apothecary here in Virginia, and she makes this Tulsi and rose petal infused honey. Oh, yum. <gasps> it's so heavenly. That's a sign. <laughs> so good. So fun. <laughs> Do you think the sun tea, I realize that's more of a slow living practice, yeah. the sun tea. Do you think that infuses the flavors better than the boiling water? I'm, Do you know, I'm asking, asking for, for a friend. friend. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, it's a different, it's just like a different thing. Yeah. It's yeah. a different thing. It's like technically probably the hot water does a better job, but there is something in that sun tea. And like, if you've ever made flower essences or used, I don't know if you've ever used a flower mm -hmm. essence. Because just, yes. you know, there's just something to it something extra you can't put your finger on that's just like a bit of plant magic you know <laughs> you know it's funny it's kind of like I don't know maybe this is not true but it's kind of like the difference with coffee like making coffee in a regular coffee maker what I do is like the coffee that I don't finish I put it in the fridge and I have like iced coffee later versus like a cold brew mm. which is like where you brew it cold which is it's so much better like it tastes so much better yeah. <laughs> and it's like it but the process is but it's the same thing maybe it's kind of like that yeah like the sun tea is like the cold brew yeah it's kind of like the cold brew but it's also like there's something about the sun elements on it as well yeah it's just so beautiful and like again it's just a lovely way of giving gratitude to your garden and it's all the beautiful things that are growing and just to, again slowing down you know slow down a bit and just enjoying the moment and giving thanks for the gorgeous summer yeah I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's my practice every day most days one of the first things I do in the morning is go out and pick things that are going to be my tea for the day. Oh, lovely. I just pick different things. You know, of course, mint, lemon balm, Tulsi. Lately, I've been, the passion flower vine is up, so I've been using that. Oh, there's so many things around. Oh, the raspberry leaf. Mm. It's in great abundance right now. But I think I'll start tomorrow. I'll make it sun tea instead, as long as the, the sun, sun is out. Yeah. The sun <laughs> is going really bright and hot. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that, Becky. I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to employ that little slow living tip. <laughs> and probably, you know, if you pour boiling water over it, you have to wait 2 or 3 hours for it to cool down enough to actually drink. So, if it's in a jar, you know, with a top on it. So, probably the same amount of time actually. What a lovely discussion on slow living. It really was so wonderful. So, what does the good dirt mean to you? I mean, I I think I kind of said that as well before like the idea of, you know, we were talking about the idea of like maybe very urbanized people being a bit scared of the countryside yeah. and a kid covered in soil and thinking, oh, that's bad, that's yucky. But actually, right. there's nothing wrong with some soil and some, it's good dirt. And like, I think we, yeah, as farmers, like we know the importance of soil health. Like it is the key to everything. And it's so exciting now to see like it's coming much more in mainstream media, people are talking about mushrooms and, and all the systems underneath the soil, the importance of mm. roots and things like that. So, yeah, I just think when I see, think good dirt, I think that is just 
life source, isn't it? Like it's that life source that we all depend on. It's out of sight. It's not the most prettiest thing, but it is so important to look after what's under our feet and cherish it and nourish it for ourselves and future generations and all the insects and flora and fauna that living living on this planet. So yeah, I just see it as like life force. Life force. Life force. Absolutely. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to chat about today or is there anything that you want to leave the audience with? I really think about that thing, really. I mean, to be honest, I could just talk about, say, living forever because it's just, I just I love it. <laughs> I just love it as a concept. <laughs> and I think it's, you know, I think once you go down that route, it's such a good journey, isn't it? I mean, you're so special and it brings so much joy. So, I mean, yeah, I guess all I could say to the listeners is, well, first of all, thanks for listening. <laughs> I hope you all start a journey. And I think for everyone, it's going to be different. You know, like for me, it was the foraging, it was the herbalism, natural wellness that got me started. For some people, it might be writing, you know, you might just get out in nature and do a bit of writing or painting or gardening. Like everyone's going to have their own different doorway into slow living. Mm. It's just really like if you've tried something and it hasn't worked, and you're like, oh, I still don't really get this. Try something else, you know, like what really lights you up already. And then just get outside with that and then kind of explore it together. And I find that's a really good way of like starting on a really good journey of slow living and nature connection as well. I think they sort of go hand in hand. How can people find you? So my website is beckyocole.com. Over on Instagram, I'm at beckyocole. And my podcast is called Nature and Nourish. And I think you can find that on iTunes and probably other couple of things. And my book is called The Garden Apothecary. And you can find that on most booksellers now. So fun. Yes. What a joy to talk to you. You're so wonderful. (laughs) Yes. This was just really, really really delightful. Your farm. Well, if you're ever out (laughs) in, you're welcome to come up. (laughs) I think we have to, Mom. I know. So where you're in Northern Ireland, what's the city you're close to? Well, the closest city would probably be Belfast, but we're about an hour and 20 minutes away from that. So, you know, Giants Causeway would be about 10 minutes away. You know, Reed Rope Bridge, okay. that's really close. The sea is really close by. It's like five minute drive away. So right oh. right on the north coast. You can see Scotland from the coast. It's, it's like really close to Scotland. It's only like seven miles or something. Do y'all go to the the beach magic. yeah do you, call, do you even call it the beach or is it really rough no do you know what? it's really beautiful uh there's like this beach oh. called white park bay which it looks exotic i mean it's got beautiful white sand and like amazing sea it's very beautiful so yeah i know we're always always going down to the beach and even the little boys have little wetsuits my three-year-old has a little wet <laughs> and my five-year-old have a wetsuit they get into because it's always quite cold so wetsuits are, yeah, are a good cold. idea so we we get on our wetsuits and and splash around and it's, it's very beautiful what's like your favorite or maybe you're like the thing you wear the most or the thing that you're most excited about like of country what do we call it country fashion country, country clothing fashion. yeah what's like your favorite thing to wear oh that is quite difficult it can be more than one I guess I, I just think it's gonna be <laughs> I mean like the thing I probably wear the most is like a good old-fashioned barber jacket you know and those wax jackets yeah that is very useful and I love those and I sort of will layer that up so like in winter I'll have like an Aaron jumper underneath which is like a knit sweater <laughs> sweater not jumper yeah. and those are really good so I like layering up that and then in summer I you know I sort of wear that thing all the time so it gets a lot of wear and stuff it's usually got all sorts of things in this pocket so that would be probably like one of my staples what else do I love wearing I do like I mentioned that day dress brand they have like beautiful like Indian block printed clothes I do mm. I do love like they use really sweet little tops uh little crop top things I love wearing those they're so beautifully printed so 
I love those. Is that a barber jacket you're wearing in one of the foraging pictures on your website? I was going to ask you about that. That's a really cool looking jacket. It's kind of dark green, olive green. Oh, you're holding cleavers in your hand. Yeah, I think it yeah, probably it's like is. A, if it's a wax. If it's a wax, yeah. I think it'll definitely yeah, be a barber. So between me and my husband, we have quite a few barbers. So it's either one of his barbers or one of my barbers. Yes. I can't remember. <laughs> I hope they send you free jackets. Um, like, <laughs> yes, occasionally they have, which is good. <laughs> I always hear that, you know, it's best to eat nettles before they flower because that's when the nutrients are most high. But it, you can eat them afterwards as well, right? So the, the reason for that is actually there's an acid, I think it's like ox something acid oh oxalic acid something like that yeah and it gets extra high when it's flowering so actually what happens is it becomes quite taxing on the liver so that's why it's recommended that you don't eat them so what you can do is if you love nettles once you've had that kind of spring flourish and you've harvested them like chop them right down to the ground and they'll come back up again and then you can keep, keep harvesting them so if mine are in flower is it too late to do that this year can i cut them down like that by half I would I would chop them down, yeah. Yeah, just chop them down now and they should grow back and you should get another harvest. Okay. Okay, thank you for that. I've been I've been you know, I've had them this is the first year that the patch has gotten so big that I can have kind of an endless supply. Yeah. You know, before I've sort of eaten them before they got to this point. Yeah. Because I I actually planted mine several years ago. <laughs> yeah, I had I just had a little bag of seeds and I planted them and they haven't gotten out of control. They're still pretty contained. But I've been hearing that about eat them before they, they go to seed. Thank you for that. Well, I hope we stay in touch. And yes, this was delightful. Yeah, well, I really loved kind of you about planning our trip. I definitely <laughs> hope that's <laughs> right. I really, I really enjoyed that. It was so much fun. Same, same. Thank you so much, Becky. Thank you so much, Becky. And we will be in touch. Okay. Well, thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Hi there. My name is Ellie. I am calling from southeast Wisconsin, and it is a beautiful, breezy day here. I'm sitting with my knitting and our five new chickens and sitting in the garden and just enjoying the sound of the wind chimes and, of course, the Good Dirt podcast. And I just wanted to call and say thank you. I recently found the podcast, and It has comforted me at the end of long days raising two little ones at home, and it's what I look forward to. So I just wanted to say thank you for all of your inspiring work and words and the cheerfulness and color that you're bringing to this community. And personally for me, hearing you both talk is really inspiring because it speaks to something in me about my relationship and connection with my two young daughters and knowing that you both as a mother and daughter team, um, you know, share so much throughout your life and clearly your passions and your relationship has grown and changed is really inspiring. Thank you again for the beautiful podcast and Lots of abundance to you both. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. 
This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow-living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye. Goodbye.